Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Spendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. Online dating apps are the way to find a partner today. And there are so many dating apps for just about every community. Gen X, Gen Y, LGBT, people who love horses, and so many more niches. So in such a crowded space, is there space for one more dating app? My guest today is David Simonarson, founder and CEO of Smitten, a new online dating app targeted at Generation Z, basically people born after 1997 who have grown up with the internet and are motivated very differently. Smitten's motto is to make being single fun, even as you're looking for that special someone. Can it succeed? We'll find out. I'm also really looking forward to hearing more about David's journey into entrepreneurship as he failed at four other startups before hitting success with Smitten, where he has just raised 10 million Series A round of funding. What is his secret? What did he learn from, his, from each of his failures before Smitten? And what can you learn from him? So let's get to it. Welcome, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. So David, let's start with the market. Since going public in 2021, it has been a pretty rough ride for Bumble, which has its share falling almost 65% from what it debuted at. Last month alone, it fell 34% in value. So my question for you, is there an appetite in the marketplace for yet another dating app? What's your view on that? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. So yeah, I definitely think that. But obviously, Bumble is not the only publicly traded company that has taken a hit in the last let's say 18 months or so so the markets are red most companies are seeing some pretty dramatic decreases in their stock prices but i at the same time i do think there's definitely an appetite for one more dating app out there because if you look at the if you look at the biggest competitors in those markets for example tinder bumble these dating apps they've been around for eight to 10 years even, like most of them are pretty old. So I do also think that they kind of know that there's a new player coming. There's a new player who will showcase, at least for the next generation, the generation set, which you were just talking about, that like those kids, they are born with smartphones in their pocket. So they're so used to having every single entertainment on demand. And when they open, let's say Tinder, for example, like seeing some five or seven pictures of a potential match, that's not enough for them. They need more engagement. They need more interaction, just more fun in a way. Yeah, I do think there's an appetite for one more fun dating app. Are you going after the same market as all those competitors that you mentioned? What we see in the dating space is that like, we see probably 10 new dating apps every single week. 
almost 10 out of 10 are like niche dating apps, meaning that it's a dating app only for Christian people or yeah. only for Muslims or only for gays or lesbians or only for single parents. So there's a lot of niche dating apps out there, but those bigger, bigger dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, they're focused for everyone. So there's not one typical focus there. And I do think that we fall in the same category, meaning that though we are focused on the younger kids right now, like 18 to maybe 25, 26 year olds, we can see that the product works for every demographic, every age group. Yeah, the market is big. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your journey. If I understand correctly, David, you had four other startups before this. You had Blendin, which was all about connecting friends when going out. You had Dusty Dots, which was a mobile game. Then you had Watchbox for work, which is a way to connect coworkers via shared memories. And then you actually had another dating app before this called The One, which was what you call a serious dating app. So yeah. my question is, talk me through, what were your biggest learnings from each of these failures? I think it would be very valuable for the entrepreneurs listening to this podcast. Yeah, definitely. So you've definitely done your research part of this, which is always exciting. So like with we launched a social network back in 2013 called Blendin. And we quickly realized and learned that when you're creating a consumer mobile app, it needs to be something that you like a lot, a subset of users need to use the app on a regular basis and oftentimes few times a day. But with this particular social network blending, it was for, it was about connecting people when they were going out, meaning that most of our users were using the app only during the weekends and maybe just one or two weekends out of the month. So it was really hard for us to get some growth and just to create that habit forming loop. So eventually that did not work out. It was just hard in that sense. Then with Dusty Dots, our mobile game, it was like, it was silly simple. It was played 2 million times in the first month since we, after we launched. And we quickly saw that the retention was something that you need to focus on a lot when you are creating something new, creating something valuable. We had good maybe one and three day retention but like most of our users they did not stick around for weeks and nobody stuck around for months meaning that all new users that we acquired they only played the game for a couple of days and then they just deleted the app and that is like a common thing that we see in the gaming industry in general it's really hard to get that retention going so we, we learned that we need to we need to have the product easy to use, but still have some good retention going. So then we launched Watchbox, a way for coworkers to connect and share fun pictures and videos of things happening at work or outside of work. We tried to raise our Series A for that venture in 2018, but it was hard mainly because we had no defensibility mechanisms in place, meaning that we had some growth in terms of, because there was a B2B solution. So we just sold it to, like to companies and it was always just a one-off sale in a way though we had like a subscription model to it but there was no network effect so there was no value to each new customer to join the network for example so when we were talking to u.s investors for our series a round they were like yeah the revenue growth is good and the team is strong and the market is big but what happens if let's say snapchat or facebook or any other competitor just copies the product and maybe sells it for the 10th of your price. How are you going to react? That was a question that I, I couldn't answer it. And that was a really difficult thing to hear. 
but then again, that was something that really shaped us because we had then been going for six or seven years trying out these three different products. And we decided to shut down the company in 2018. But my co-founder, Oscar and I, we just decided to keep on going. And that's also maybe the biggest learning point uh, throughout my entire journey is that the only thing that I know is that if I give up, I won't be successful. That's for certain. But if I keep going, the dream is still alive and we might be able to create something valuable to someone. So we actually launched a serious dating app back in 2019. And I do think we were lucky to be well-known entrepreneurs in Iceland. So we managed to raise a small angel round and a pre-seed round. So we could gather a great team. But we launched a serious dating app called The One in the summer of 2019. Because all of our friends and family members, they were always com complaining about dating apps in general. For a lot of users, it felt like work being on a dating app. So we wanted to create a totally opposite dating app. So not where you're mindlessly swiping through people, but actually where you just get one match a day with an AI that gave you the best possible match. You would only see one profile picture and, and just the first name. So you wouldn't be able to Google that person, et cetera. But we quickly realized that it, 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 don't, it doesn't work like that for most users. First of all, 80% of users or people in general, they just lack the communication skills to start a conversation with a stranger. And people want to choose. It's like that's the reason why Tinder and other dating apps have been so successful is that people like to have the opportunity to pick and choose for themselves. Hmm. So... We obviously tried for a year to iterate on that product, but eventually in the summer of 2020, we saw that it wasn't going nowhere. We had no organic growth. The retention was okay, but it wasn't through the roof. It was a pivotal moment for us when a lot of our users were like, again, constantly complaining about dating apps and how boring they were. So we thought to ourselves, like, why isn't there a dating app not focused on the end goal of finding a serious partner or long-term relationship or finding a casual hookup or whatever it is that you're looking for, but a dating app that is actually just focused on the journey while you're single, making sure that it's fun to use the product similar to it's fun to use Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever other social medium. So we just yeah took a U-turn, pivoted from the one to Smitten, which is just the most fun dating app in the world. And everything changed. We saw just immediately week or week, consecutive week or week, organic growth, managed to raise seat round last year. Our goal was to raise one and a half million dollars, ended up raising almost three, just because we were oversubscribed in the seat round. Launched the product in another market in Denmark. We used to be only live in Iceland, which is our home market. The product is now, yeah, working really well in Denmark. That Denmark is now a much bigger market for us compared to Iceland. And that kind of gave us the... The fuel to raise our series say round a few weeks ago so yeah it's just really looking forward to the next few months and years i love your lessons learned tell me how you applied that to smitten you talked about watchbox for work and one of the problems was defensibility and answering the question of how your competitors can't just copy what you're doing so how are you building yeah. that with smitten like why couldn't bumble do the same why couldn't tinder do what you're doing yeah, and that's also a really good question. Really interesting thing with consumer apps is that most of the time they have like an inbuilt network effects, meaning that as the network grows and gets bigger, the more valuable the network becomes for every single user. And that in itself 
is probably the greatest defensibility mechanisms that you can ever have. Because that means, for example, if I would just copy Tinder today, and if I would launch Tinder 2.0, it would not get any traction because everyone is on Tinder. If I would launch, let's say Airbnb or Instagram or whatever, it would probably not get any traction because it's, it would be just the same product, but like the network is on another product. Network effects in itself is the greatest defensibility mechanism. So Smitten is so different from other dating apps that we have an easy time to acquire users because they are just flooding over from Tinder and Bumble and other dating apps to Smitten. And that creates a strong defensibility mechanism for our product. Because now, for example, if somebody would launch Smitten 2.0 in Denmark or Iceland, they would not be successful in those markets because we are already there and we have the network in place. I see. And what about the other thing that you talked about in the Dusty Dots mobile game about growth and retention? You talked about launching in Denmark. I know you're going to be launching in Sweden. How are you ensuring retention? What are the strategies or tactics that are working for you or that you've learned from your previous experience that you're now applying to Smitten? Because I think retention is really key, especially again in consumer apps to make sure that's there and the money that you're pouring in isn't getting just burned through to acquire and then the people don't actually come back time and time again. Yeah, there, there are a few things like when we look at retention, it means that we need to have a subset of users that do regularly return to our app and use it hopefully often. And the way to do that, you can do it with multiple different techniques and tactics. So obviously the first one, and maybe not the easiest one, but the first one and the most important one is just to create a great product, meaning that you should focus on building a great user experience for your users because that will retain them. That will even get you some viral growth because then users will start talking to other people about that, this product, etc. So that's the first thing is just to focus on building a brilliant and great product. Then all of then you can think about, okay, making sure that the product is really easy to use and really easy to understand just within the first session even. Because a lot of apps and a lot of just services in the world they, there may be great services, but like it takes you a couple of weeks or months just to finally understand what's, what it's all about. You can't do that with a typical consumer app. It needs to be really straightforward. People really need to understand the value proposition and what you're trying to do within the first session because else they will just delete the app immediately. So the onboarding funnel needs to be really short and the app needs to be easy to use. And then we like, and then maybe the third part is that we can do all of, we can do some fun tactics to make sure that we are retaining users. For example, we have a scarcity factor in built into our product, meaning that you can't just open up Smitten and mindlessly swipe through hundreds of people. Mm. You will only get a batch of 30 people at a time, meaning that you will spend probably more time looking at each profile and then when you finished the 30, you're like, ah, I still want to scratch that itch. Like I want to get 10 more, 20 more. And we don't give you that until you, you need to wait 10 minutes. So this is something that Candy Crush did famously with their lives. You got five lives. If you lost those five lives, you either needed to wait for 10 or 20 minutes to get an extra life, 
or you could invite a friend to the platform to get an extra like, which was a brilliant growth hack back in the days. So that is something that we've also built into our product, meaning that you finish the 30 and you're like, I, I want more. So you wait. And maybe after an hour or two hours, you're like, okay, now I get a full batch again. So you open up Smith and again, and that also creates retention and engagement. I like that idea of creating almost a false scarcity because you have the profiles, but you're holding back. And that exactly. is playing with the psychology of the people. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so when you're talking to me about all these different startups that you did, honestly, David, my biggest question was, how did you keep going? It is brutal to start a company and put all your effort into building it. You think it's great. And then you just keep getting rejection after rejection. You know, the first time is fine, but to do it second, third, and fourth time, tell me how you overcome this feeling of failure. Can I really do this? Should I just, maybe I'm just not an entrepreneur and I should do something. How do you get past that self-doubt to keep going? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a tough question as well, because being an entrepreneur, it's a roller coaster ride and you have the highest and the lowest lows. And it's, it's really hard to need to do some layoffs. It's really hard when you decide to shut down a company and you lose a lot of money, like people's money at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's really tough. I like the thing that kind of keeps me going is that I'm a really competitive guy. And I was just born and raised in that environment that you should always strive to be the best. And it's okay to have some mistakes or failures along the way, as long as you look at them as a learning steps towards becoming a better person and just being better in a sense. So I do think that in just in my early adulthood, that was something that was engraved into my soul, my heart, my brain. And that has just kept me going. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what it is, but I just, I have so much belief that I will create something valuable for someone. It just, it takes a lot of time. And I often say like when I, when I'm giving lectures or whatever, that nobody is born great at playing the piano. Nobody can just, you can't walk in the first few months. It's just, you need to fall down a couple of times, stand back up on your feet and then just try again and again. And I do think it's the same with entrepreneurship, just starting companies. It's really hard. And like, I had no idea what I was doing 10 years ago, 10 years ago. I probably don't know anything today, but at least I know a bit more than 10 years ago. Yeah. Did you, do you think, is there something in your upbringing or the education system in Iceland that makes people have this competitiveness or is it something that you think you were born with i'm just always curious about that maybe i don't think that i was maybe born with it but something that i was taught through adulthood let's say that or my upbringing so i actually lost my fa father when i was pretty young or 23 and the, at that age you're still trying to figure out what you want to do etc i was just finishing my university degree in engineering and losing my father kind of when you lose your parent at a young age, it put, put, puts everything into perspective. And like life is too short in a sense. So I don't know. I think that also shaped me and hey, just I want to build my own future. I want to do what I love to do. And that is trying to create products that hopefully one day millions of people's, people will use. And hopefully something that will actually 
change some people's lives. So I think after I lost my dad, I just, I can't go to a typical nine to five work. And there are a lot of people that do that and I admire them, but I'm just, I think I'm wired differently in that sense. And I think the death of my father shaped me into the person that I am today. We tell every single employee here that like life is too short not to have fun. So we should always be focused on that not the output, what you're doing at work, et cetera. So if your spouse or partner is asking like, hey, should we go to lunch and do something fun today? Let's just do it. Because that's the memories that you will remember after five, 10, 50 years or so. So yeah, I think it's super important just to focus on how short life actually is. Yeah, life is too short to have fun. I like that. I want to bring the conversation to funding. I believe, Dre, you've done like eight different funding rounds. And that's a lot of funding rounds for any entrepreneur to do. And you obviously raised 10 million. So you've done it right. You've done it at least with Smitten. Can you talk me through your philosophy and process for fundraising? Yes. So I have pretty strong opinions when it comes to fundraising, because I do think most entrepreneurs, at least first-time founders, do it wrong in the first way. And I did it probably too. I did it too. (laughs) The thing that most founders do is that they start fundraising and then maybe talk to five or 10 different investors, either in their neighborhood or in their city or whatever. And they just talk to them and see if they're interested or not. They don't have any process around it. They don't, and that is something that I think you should do. They don't look at it as a sales process. Similar to if you were selling your property or selling your car or whatever it is, you want as many people to see it to get the best price for you as possible and and to find the best possible buyer. So when I do fundraising, like for example, the seed round, we were just a team of three guys based in Reykjavik, Iceland. And we said, hey, okay, we're about to raise a seed round. We want to raise one and a half million dollars into this dating app called Smitten. Let's talk to 200 VCs in 10 days. Uh, and we just created a list of 200 really great consumer-focused VCs, both in the US and in Europe. And we actually spoke to 200 VCs in eight days. And we just, we decided, hey, we want the top of the funnel to be quite big. And then we just started narrowing it down. Obviously, like instantly 70 investors were like, hey, no, dating app, not interested at all. Probably another 50 did just not reply to our calls or cold emails or connections or whatever. But like we had maybe 70 is 60, 70 that were interested and we took meetings with and then maybe half of them wanted to do more partner meetings. And at the end, we had like a few different term sheets that we could pick and choose from. So that's the, I think, the right way to do it. At least, at least it's a way that it's so much better than just talking to one or two or three investors that you know. And so what we did after the seed round is that we had then kind of like a list of 50, 60 investors that were really interested and passionate about what we were building and many of them they were not able just to participate in the seed round so we just created like a we called it the wait list an investor update list where we updated those investors every single month with all of our metrics all of our kpis and just everything that was happening internally so in a sense we were just 
building smitten in the public, at least in the public for those investors. And then a year later, when we decided to raise the Series A, I just posted in one of these updates like, hey, we're about to fundraise. We are like the Danish market has outgrown the Icelandic market. We just need more fuel on the fire. We want to launch in Sweden and then London and UK. And as soon as I sent that email, like a lot of investors just instantly called us and we got the preemptive term sheet. And we that fundraising process was really short and sweet because usually it takes a few months and it's yeah. a lot of work. So I, I was lucky to have skipped that part, at least in this funding round. How long did it take to close that last round? Really short, a couple of weeks, maybe. Wow, fantastic. I love that. What yeah. are the metrics that you were updating the investors on? What do you think they care about? So it was at least in the consumer space, it's almost like you have a few really important metrics. So obviously that's just user growth, but then more importantly, it's retention, stickiness. So what's the ratio between daily active users divided by monthly active users? Because that kind of shows you how good the network is performing because it's really easy to manipulate growth. I can just buy more and more downloads every single week and be experienced week or week growth. But if nobody is staying, that's not sustainable. So I think like retention and stickiness are two metrics that investors look closely on. Though we didn't, we haven't really started monetizing, but we have one subscription feature within the app. So we were also just letting investors know that, hey, our monthly recurring revenue is increasing. And when we decided to raise the Series A round, we were already at like almost $1 million in annual recurring revenue run rate. So yeah, those are maybe the few key metrics that we were reporting on. You're doing 1 million. That's really good. Can I just wind back to seed round? You mm-hmm. talk about when you were doing the seed round, what is the most important thing that investors look for? What do you have to have nailed down to have a successful seed round? So I do think that the most important thing at the seed round is the team. But then again, you always also need to look at, is the market big enough? Is is this a possible billion dollar opportunity because that is something that VCs are actively looking for. They want to find that one or two portfolio companies that can really return their fund. I do think at the seed round, the team is the most important thing, but like we had already launched Smitten a few months prior to raising the seed round. So we could also leverage the metrics. So we could also show, hey, we are experiencing week over week growth. We have some really amazing retention and engagement metrics. So I do think that also helped us a lot because it's like, oftentimes it just comes down to two things for investors. They either it's a gut driven decision, meaning that, Hey, yeah, I like this team. They could probably build something and this market is probably huge. Or when you have launched, especially if you have revenues and like then investors oftentimes can I go from the gut-driven decision and be more tactical in that sense? They like look at the numbers and they like, and that is oftentimes hurtful for companies yeah. at the seed stage because yeah. oftentimes and most of the times your numbers suck in the yeah. beginning. What's the advice you would give to people doing seed round of funding? Would you say show numbers or would you say go with the vision, the concept and the strength of the team? It depends. It's a tough question because if you have good numbers, you should definitely go with the numbers because the it's the easier easiest. It's often said, just build the greatest product and you will get funded and you will get you will see great success. But that's hard to build a great product. So, 
I do think it depends if you're if you're just about to launch. That could also be a good timing for you as a founder to raise a seed round because then you can showcase that hey we've built this product so that is oftentimes a really big check mark for investors because they're investing in the team and they want to know hey do you have the abilities to build what you're saying that you're about to build and that is the reason why so many serial entrepreneurs exist because mm. it's easier for them to fundraise because the investors, they know that, okay, this person actually can build something. They do know how to deliver, etc. Yeah. So I think if you have a product that is ready, try to maybe fundraise before. If you're super confident that you will just launch and everything will be green and the metrics will be up and to the right, then you are probably better off by launching first and then you can leverage the numbers to get a better valuation and just better deal at the end of the day. How do you do valuation at the seed stage? I think you should always look at it look at it so it's a win-win situation. So like when you're doing fundraising or just any deal whatsoever, it should always be a win-win scenario. So like you shouldn't just strive to get like the best possible outcome for you because it should also be the best possible outcome for the investor. So it needs to be a partnership. So what I usually do is that it's, we just look at the range and it's usually every single seed round is usually between 15 to maybe 25% dilution. And that is like a typical range. Obviously you as the founder, you want to be close to 15% as possible. The investor probably wants to be as close to 25%, but then you just figure things out. It doesn't matter the valuation of the startup in that sense. What matters is the, the size of the funding round because the valuation kind of just looks at how much money you're raising. So if you're raising maybe $5 million, then the pre-money valuation could maybe be 20 million. But if you're only raising $1 million, then the pre-money should maybe only be four or five. So it's, it's different. But then again, it's, yeah, it's like valuation is something that you as a founder shouldn't be too focused on in the beginning. Because I just, I've seen it <laughs> myself. Getting money isn't at all a good metric to judge somebody on their success. Yeah. Uh, it's like one of the stepping stones that you need to get to, to hire more people to deliver on the vision or the promise that you're trying to deliver on. So yeah, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you own one or 2% less or more. Yeah. Okay. I think that's really good advice. I want to bring it back to entrepreneurship and Iceland. I'm curious as to what is it that's making Iceland such an entrepreneurial hub these days? Yeah. So like... I do think that the landscape has changed so much in the past 10, 12 years. So when I started, like there was almost nobody doing startups in Iceland. It felt like that at least. Yeah. Now, today, it feels like everyone is creating something new and doing their own things, which is really exciting. I think it comes down to maybe a few things. What the government has been doing in Iceland for the past few years is some of the things that they've been doing is just extraordinary and really helpful for startups. For example, they did an initiative a few years ago where they started giving like cash back of all R&D costs. So like everything we spend here internally in research and development, and that includes salary costs to all of our developers and just everything. 
the government is paying us back 20% of all of that cost, Um, which is amazing because it just, it changes a lot for the startup. And then in COVID, they actually increased this cash back or the percentage up to 30% and even 35% last year. And that is just, that changes the landscape for us as startups a lot because we are in a much, much better position competing against the bigger countries. And then there's like another small initiative that was started maybe 10, 15 years ago in Iceland and has been really ramping up for the past few years. It's like a startup hub that if you are a new founder, a new upcoming entrepreneur, you can easily just talk to this foundation and they will help you with everything in terms of business model and innovation or making sure that you're connecting through the right entrepreneurs in the ecosystem or to the right investors, et cetera. So it's like a, a launch pad for new startups. Mm. Uh, and I think that is something that, at, at least for me, I was a part of an accelerator here back in Iceland almost 10 years ago that really kickstarted my journey because I just got to know the network and built the ecosystem. And so, yeah, that Iceland, and we've seen it as well in Denmark and Sweden, for example, and Finland that like the governments have a big say in this. And if they can be supportive, then we'll see more unicorns and just really big companies from those countries. Superb. I love it. I can see how there's going to be a lot more entrepreneurs coming out of Iceland and hopefully other smaller countries all over Europe will be doing the same thing. We've almost come to the end of the podcast, David. And at the end, I like to just ask some rapid fire questions of my guests. And usually I start with what's your favorite book? Anything that either inspired you or made an impact on you that you want to share with others? Yeah. Can I name two? Of course. <laughs> okay. Then like, I want to say Never Split the Difference by Chris Was. It's like a negotiation tactic book, but it just, because I do think like everything in life, you're always negotiating with other people. And it kind of, as I was just talking about, like every single deal should be a win deal. So that has changed a lot in my just communication style with employees or investors and everyone. So I highly recommend that book. And then there's another book, Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki that I read back in 2010, I think. So actually two of my very good friends, they gave me this book as a Christmas present and I opened it and I just read it in a couple of days and I, it changed my perspective on life away because uh-huh. I was just, I was studying industrial engineering and I thought, okay, I'm just going to do my bachelor's and then master's, maybe take my PhD and then I'm going to work for some company and just take the corporate ladder at the end and maybe be a CEO of that company after 20, 30 years. But this book just changes the perspective on you can actually just go ahead and build your own dreams. So that is a book that absolutely adore and love, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I've heard that book being recommended by quite a few entrepreneurs. It seems to be something that they, you know, they really, that made an impact on them and the way they Yeah, Yeah, I think for most founders, you, you probably just, you, I really resonate with this book. Well, so, okay. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. What about a productivity tip or productivity hack or tool that you use? Something that helps other people be more productive. That's a good one. I no, like, something, like what do you do that keeps you, that helps you to be productive? Yeah. So I actually think inbox zero. 
So when it comes to answering emails and just making sure that your email client is always to zero, that increases productivity by a lot. And at the same time, it decreases and reduces stress by a lot. So just making sure that your email is, you're not, it's not filled with either unread or read messages, making sure that you're just either acting on every single email that you get in or archiving it right off the bat, just making sure that your inbox is clean and empty is something that I highly recommend and even enforce this on every single employee here because it just, it reduces stress by miles. So you have like different filters and put in folders and start, et cetera. Is that how you keep it to inbox? Yes. If I receive an email, I maybe let's say I, I spent a few minutes a day reading through my email and I immediately read every single email during that session. And then I just either act on it if it takes me less than a minute or two to act on it. Either I archive it or if it's something that needs a bit more time, I leave it as my to-do list. So at least at the end of the day, I always try to leave my inbox empty, meaning that I get to inbox zero. So maybe I have maybe three or four or five things that I do need to act on. It takes me at least five, 10 minutes to act on each item, but then I do it. And I just, I get that dopamine and endorphin yeah. rush when I finish it. Okay. I like that. And what is your favorite European city? Ooh, I want to say Copenhagen in Denmark, because I used to work there, live and work there every single summer for four or five consecutive summers when I was like 17, 18, 19, 20. So I just, I went there for three or four months with my then girlfriend and we were just working from 6am to maybe noon. And then we had the day off just to have fun and an amazing time. And I absolutely love Copenhagen because of that. And it's just an amazing city. Okay. And my last one is your favorite quote. <laughs> this is also a really good one. I have a quote. That I'm not sure if I just made it up myself or if somebody, some legend probably said it. So if you know it, please let me know. But I have a quote that, that I'm always referring to. And that is, change the perceived value and the actual value changes. I love that. Yes. Explain it a bit more. What do you mean? Yeah, so I could say Google, for example, has acquired one or 200 startups for the past two years, which is, that's a, it's good. It's a lot of startups, but I could also say Google is acquiring a new startup every three or four days. So it's the same exact metric, but the latter one feels they're acquiring new startup every three or fourth day. So just how you frame things, how you can change and yeah, change the perceived value of something it actually can change what the actual value you receive is, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's, that makes sense. It's yeah. Really, so I, I, as I said, I don't know if some legend created this quote or if I somehow came up with it, but it's a quote that I not live by, but it's my favorite quote. Love it. Love it. David, is there anything else I should have asked you that I didn't about your journey that might help other entrepreneurs? No, I think we have covered it all. It's just don't give up. Just keep on going. Try, keep on grinding. And at the end of the day, you're trying to create some value for other people. And that is really fulfilling. And we've now managed to do that with Smitten. We are changing people's lives. And that is really fulfilling and satisfying. And just, it's something that I can go to bed really happy thinking about 
So yeah, just keep grinding. Eventually we'll see, see some success if you don't give up. Excellent. I look forward to seeing Smitten launch in the UK. I have some nephews and nieces that are <laughs> at the right age to use the app. Thank you, David, for being on my podcast today. I enjoyed our conversation and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and the ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.